Good evening, and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the podcast where we hold horror to progressive standards that never agreed to. Tonight, we're talking about the movie I've been excited to check out for a year now, the 2021 sequel to the original Nia DaCosta's Candyman. I am your host, Jeremy Whitley, and with me tonight, I have a panel of cinephiles and cinephites. First, you're here to invade your house and find queer content in all of your favorite movies. My co-host and comic book writer, Ben Kahn. Ben, how are you tonight? We're here to talk about a movie that features an immortal being who is unfazed, if not made stronger by the ravages of time. Vanessa Williams. And her name is Vanessa Williams. <laughs> <laughs> we picked her up at this spooky crossroads of anime and sexy monster media. It's co-host and comic artist Emily Martin. How are you tonight, Emily? This movie is good enough that it made up for the fact that there were quite a few less real bees than the original. But, it's just you like know. the rest of the world, man. I feel like Yaya would have charged a lot more than $1,000 per thing. I feel like that had to have come up in one of the actors, like Screen Actors Guild union contracts, where it's, it's got to be at least 10000 a bee sting now. You know what, man? But this movie did not have a bodysuit full of bees, and the body horror was much worse than a bodysuit full of bees. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> so I was still into it. Yeah, let's let's introduce our guests here. We have, first of all, from the Talking Comics podcast, our friend Aaron Amos. How are you doing, Aaron? I am good. I'm good. Thanks for having me again. Oh, it's our pleasure. And the reviewer behind Diversity and Horror, Morgan, how are you? I'm doing really well. I'm very excited to talk about this movie. The original Candyman is one of my favorites, and the follow-up is great, and I've dissected this movie like to death, so I'm so excited to talk about it. Did you awesome. get every B out? Yes, I did. Every single B. Okay. <laughs> got all up in the mirror and got them. And yes. our English educator and our friend of the podcast, Emmanuel Lipscomb. Emmanuel, how are you? I am so excited to talk about this. The original movie ruined my life, and this one was much, much, you know, better to see as an adult rather than a child. (laughs) (laughs) True that. Just the kind of basics of this, it is directed by Nia DaCosta. It is written by Jordan Peele, Nia DaCosta, and Wynne Rosenfeld. It stars Yaya Abdul-Mateen, Tiana Paris, Nathan Stewart Jarrett, Coleman Domingo, Vanessa E. Williams, and of course... Tony Todd. Uh, INDB says it is a sequel of the horror film Candyman that returns to the now gentrified Chicago neighborhood where the legend began. And that is absolutely true and really important to this movie because gentrification and Cabrini Green are like a big part of this movie, which I was really glad to see. Like this movie totally returns to the original and its themes of folklore and gentrification and these communities and how they're created and eviscerated and exploited and torn down. And it's a really good movie with a lot of good shit to say. Everything in the in the first movie that kind of didn't quite commit hard enough it finally commits to here that you see a lot of movies these days that are like the redo or the new version or the blah 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 rarely do you get a movie that is so good on its own also very true to the source material and also just like its own style and it's not trying to pick up it's not it's also not pandering there are cameos but we'll get into that now this is really skipping to kind of what happens in the end to a degree but this movie does feel like it is part of a very new subgenre where the influence is obvious of kind of horror monster as superhero origin film. I need it. I need all of it. I, <laughs> in that, like, in this way, and I'm going to say arguably only this way, Candyman reminds me of Malignant. 
I don't know how to process that. Sure. That's, that's a <laughs> only, lot. <laughs> only in the degree to which they seem to have this same like horror movie as superhero origin. There is a line. This is the yeah. axis. And can't even it's on one like, side. And if a Nick Fury type showed up, he's like, I'm recruiting people. I got malignant. I got candy man. Like <laughs> we're just weird salad. Like none of that. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I really liked about this Candyman is I felt like it fixed one of the problems I had with the original, which was mainly that it centered a white character. Absolutely. And it's this movie about black trauma, but it stars this upper class white woman. Yeah. And it's more about her trauma. And the story was being told by like a white director, which I feel like detracted somewhat from what they were trying to do. In this one, it centers a black character. It's being told by black voices, so it fixes that issue I had with the original film. I I think they confront that head on. It's right there, like textually, yeah. the spirit of Candyman has been weakened because the story has shifted to Helen, and the part of the plot is taking that power and that centering of the narrative away from Helen and putting it back on the real victims of this uh, racial violence. I love how they completely took away the random white savior shit from the end of the first Candyman and she's just remembered as like a fucking crazy serial killer. Yeah, it's almost like the resolution to the original Candyman is, oh, now everybody remembers Helen. She is the myth that people remember and that people care about and that is overshadowed Candyman, taking power away from him. And that is the problem in this movie is that people have forgotten about Candyman. And as such, this this character who is not necessarily just the protector, but in part the protector of this neighborhood and the embodiment of the pain and rage of this neighborhood has lost power and that they have to find him and bring him back to some extent. You know how when you find some adults who come into their own identity or whatever and they say you know what i know who i am now but i didn't have the language or the words you know when i was younger to accurately describe it or identify it. i feel like that's what this movie went through in in 92 or well 91 or whatever when they, when they were filming it and writing it i don't think they had the language to create what should have been in that space and now because you gave it to people who do have the language to speak to what it is it's a much better film. And I'll be honest, I had to go back and and literally scan a bunch of YouTube videos to to remind me of the original film. Oh yeah, Virginia Mass. Oh yeah, that's what, oh okay. Now I'm I'm back. All right, I'm good now. And I really had to do that and understand it. That's so wild to me because I was seven when I saw it, which is way too fucking young, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's way and too young to see that, um Tony Todd with beefs for everything chest. about the myth. Bees come out of his mouth. You summon him by going in the dark and like saying in front of the mirror, et cetera. Like all of that was very easy to understand. I couldn't have told you like the intricacies of the plot, but like Candyman as an idea was crystal clear. <laughs> like it's so interesting because it's never felt so much the the people who created this movie watched the same movie I did in the original Candyman and have the same like questions and concerns about it because like they address the fact that. For some reason, in the original, almost all of the victims that Candyman takes are black people living in that same neighborhood who have done nothing to earn his ire. Yeah, he just picks them because he needs to pick someone to further the legend and, yeah, and, and perpetuate the story. And beyond that, I think 
I specifically said when we were talking about it last time, I was like, Candyman's got so much stuff. Why does he have so many things? He has the candy, he has the hook, he has the bees, he has all these little like bits and pieces that don't all make sense together. And this movie solves that problem because it's like, yeah, that's a bunch of different guys. Yeah. That's a bunch of horrible things that happen to a bunch of different people. And they've all been sort of mixed together into this one urban legend. And like watching this movie, I was spellbound. Normally, there's I've watched so many movies for this podcast that half the time I'm messing with my phone or I'm dealing with kids or something. And this was just like the whole movie. I was just like, yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah, the, God, line, uh-huh. yeah. the line that made me feel like I'd been punched with a brick is when Burke says Candyman is how we deal with what happened and that it's still happening. Yeah. So good. So good. Yeah. I think. Like the two people who are definitely the main characters of this movie, Anthony and Brianna, get a lot of the good like acting of it. But Burke Coleman Domingo gets all the good lines. Coleman because... <laughs> Domingo is incredible. In he this drops movie. that one, and he also drops the "They love what we make, but they don't love us." Yes. And that's, that's yeah, that, that was the one that, that, was that I was watching it. I was like, "Ooh, that was good." Ooh. Everything Coleman Domingo does, like every scene, he is sublime in this film. Yeah. Yeah, he comes out of left field too. Like you don't realize he's going to be as big a part of it as he is. He's just the old man that's there to deliver mythology. I thought he was friendly exposition, man. But (laughs) no, I watch this with my wife, who does not usually do horror, and we talked about how it feels like it follows because the way that Candyman appears when we first see him, he's only in reflections, like he can't be perceived, like dead on. I don't know about you, but. The camera kept doing weird things where it would shift into place. I'm like, are they trying to frame something in the background? Like that dark hallway's dark. There's a mirror there. I kept wondering if he's going to appear in a scene that I'm not picking up on, almost like a Tyler Durden foreshadowing kind of thing. And that's what I was watching for half the time. Just like, I know he's in the background of the scene somewhere. I don't see him, but like a magic eye poster. He's there. There's, <laughs> there's the scene in the art critic's house where like he's been having this horrible hallucination of himself as Candyman. And she opens the door, breaks the hallucination. And he's talking to her and her mirror is in the deep background behind her. Mm -hmm. And you can see Candyman's coat like reflected in the mirror. I didn't even notice it until he moved. Uh, So do we want to jump into the the recap? Uh, We start with the introduction of two characters who I immediately had in my notes. Please don't let there be a barrier gaze in this movie. Well, we start in Cabrini Green in 1977. So before the original Candyman, and we have a young Burke walking around the heavily policed Cabrini Green. He is going to do his laundry for his family. And he goes down into this laundry room. And, you know, the, the cops are there. They ask him. They're showing posters around of some guy they're looking for. And he goes down into the basement of this place to do laundry. And if you've seen the original Candyman, the appearance of this giant hole in the wall behind him is like immediately I was like, oh, no. Oh, yeah. oh, no. That should set off all the red flags if you know how this movie treats holes in the walls. Yeah, Yeah, like either way, it's like a big yawning maw no matter what. It's not as literally a yawning maw as it is in the original movie, but a hole like that. Yeah, no. Yeah. And then the original movie too, they had the like the bathroom mirror that actually like um did as a a gateway for Candyman as well. Which is based on an actual crime in Cabrini Green. Yes. Yes, that's true. Where a woman, um, Ruthie, was murdered because the criminal basically came through the bathroom mirror in the, the medicine cabinet and climbed in and killed her. And they actually drew inspiration from that from the original Candyman. Yeah. What this movie preserved really well from the original 
was just the sense of Candyman as inescapable, especially in the way that Candyman is just slow and methodical and is in no rush, even compared to, you know, Michael and Jason don't run, but they're still after you in a way that Candyman isn't because he doesn't have to be. Yeah. Like he- First time we see him in the original, he's just standing there. He's just standing in the parking garage. And he's I, just I- being sexy ass Tony Todd in the parking garage. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. Yeah. Which yeah. again, to this day, if I just was in a parking garage and I turned the corner, there was sexy ass Tony Todd saying a bunch of mystic shit. And that coat, look, I don't know how I'd react. Everyone's like, don't say Candyman five times. I'm like, look, if Tony Todd is going to show up in my bedroom, if I say Candyman five times, I'm going to do it. I'm just saying. <laughs> Safe words. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> critical. Critical. I think that's how that works. <laughs> we, we need to have safe words. Yeah. What What is the Candyman safe word? Like, I think there should be one. Insulin. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So yeah, we um, he's doing the laundry. We get him emerging back up into the hallway. He's just getting ready to walk back up the stairs. Nothing bad's happening until a piece of candy just falls to the ground behind him, and he stops to pick it up. And he looks back to the hole, and somebody is emerging from the hole, and he. Screams and then we cut to the present as the police come running. Somebody in a big cool jacket and a hook for a hand. Yeah, but it's not the same. It's not the Tony Todd. We won't really see that so much until later. And we have that cool opening credit. We're looking up through the clouds at the buildings, which is a reflection of the original opening credit scene where we're looking down at the city. Yeah. Also, just all those views of Chicago from like reverse are just crazy cool and otherworldly if nothing else the visuals of this film are amazing just the yeah, yeah. The coloring and everything I, I was really caught by that i did have to rewind a couple times because i probably wasn't paying attention to what was happening in the scene because i was focused so much on the visual and i had to go back and look at it i'm like i don't know is this my television or is this actually the what's happening here and all of those scenes like the color composition is great but also like people's hair and clothes like everyone mm-hmm. just looks amazing. yeah yeah I, I love jordan's like directing in us and in get out but Nita Costa frames these scenes in such a way that like there's so much happening in like the deep background and far foreground of scenes that it's just it's so beautifully put together in a way that like I don't think I would ever think to do these things. Everything is so art- yes, yeah, it's, it's artistically framed and all the settings have character, all of them. Yeah. Every hallway, every door even the outdoor settings and everything has character and also like the outside whenever they're out there's always like that sound of sirens and which is amplified whenever they're talking about something upsetting and when, so when anthony is staring at the church and he's yeah. standing on the grass like god like location is just so powerful in this movie the church it's a real location that was actually gentrified it's called the north side strangers home baptist church and it used to have this beautiful mural called all of mankind by the artist uh, william walker and it got gentrified and it was bought and it was literally whitewashed like they painted over it okay so that's like a real yeah, so it's, yeah. this is a real thing that actually happened. So it was a very powerful symbol to have in the film because it's showing the result of whitewashing and covering up this mural by this Black artist about just peace and harmony, and they just destroyed it. Yeah, because in the movie, the church appears as a sort of monolithic white building. Yep. And then the, he, Tony, the, the main character, has a uh, a picture of it from before. 
Yeah, that was the original. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, because he's a, it was a famous uh, muralist in the 70s and stuff. Yeah, and our story begins in 1977. And then we moved to 2019, which I think is interesting that they specified it was 2019. And I think it was probably 2019 when they started working. Right, <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, oh, it's the present. Yeah. Not realizing it would be another two years before it would come out. Yeah, <laughs> but I figured they're also making up for the fact that nobody's wearing masks. Yeah. So yeah, we jumped to modern day Chicago where we're going to a dinner party with Troy Cartwright, played by Nathan Stewart Jarrett, and his new boyfriend, Grady Greenberg, played by Kyle Kaminsky. And they are coming to a party with Troy's sister, Brianna, who's uh, played by Tiana Paris, and her artist boyfriend, Anthony McCoy, who's played by Yaya Abdul-Mateen II. And yeah, this is our main cast for most of this movie. This is who we'll be dealing with other than we'll meet some mysterious people a little later on. You were mentioning, Ben, that there is there's not a bury the gaze trope here. Yeah. Yes. Well, the one thing I will say, like, who the fuck goes to a dinner party? is like, want to hear a scary story? Like, if I was at a dinner party and someone said it, I was like, want to hear a ghost? I'm like, they're no. family. It's only the four of them. They're family. I can see. Troy also has personality. So I, I'm totally the person who would go to a dinner like party and be like, hey, you guys want to hear a really scary story? Troy has a really great line later about no dick in the world <laughs> is enough to offset a demonology hobby. And I'm like, <laughs> he, says, he says that. But may I offer in return? Yaya Abdul-Mateen the second. Yeah, or Tony Todd. <laughs> a lot meet, of dick talk. We meet Troy's sister, Brianna, yep. uh, who's yes. played by Hannah Paris. She is one of our main characters in this movie. She is Anthony's girlfriend and the director of the art gallery that he's displayed in. Clive? I just kept calling her Monica. <laughs> I wanted to know more about like just her wardrobing in every scene is incredible. At one point she switches over to French effortlessly. And we know that there's some trauma there that they address later in the movie, but we don't get too much more about it. I'm just like, there's something going on with her too. <laughs> yeah. So at the at the party, Troy tells the story of Helen Lyle, a woman who cut off the head of a Doberman, started a killing spree, broke out of a mental institution. And then tried to sacrifice a baby in a bonfire. The story is animated in this amazing like paper puppet style that they use to do a lot of the like historical violence in this. Uh, I love which the is paper really puppets. incredible. It's it's some uh Kentridge and Kara Walker, very close to their their particular styles. I'll talk about them when we do recommendations. But I think it's William Kentridge, South African artist. Let me double check, because if I am wrong, then I'm going to be very disappointed in myself. And the effect, the effects were all practical, too, right? The the, yeah. the paper cutouts. I believe that was all practical. Yeah. yeah they, um, they do basically like a demo of it in the first scene. They they show the kid doing it on the, the bigger screen in his living room. It's really interesting to me, because I don't know how many people bought it and watched a bunch of the special features and stuff because I, I literally watched the whole movie and then just went through all the special features afterwards oh. but they talk about that like part of the reason they did this is how since get out has come out there's been this rush of capitalizing on black trauma and horror and how like they were trying to find a way to make this black trauma part of the story and important and something that we would know about in the story without making everybody all the black people watching it relive this again in the, the way that so many of these i think people have pointed out that 
to show them very pointedly uh displays all of their all of the black trauma all the you know horrible things that happen with racism they just really want to go into great detail in that that show yeah. to show everything and as almost like passion of the christ level of detail this was done specifically to do the opposite of that to include it in the story without making everybody you know, relive it yet again when it's still affecting and unsettling like it, yeah. it is a great medium for storytelling and it gets at all of the horror of each of the events without as you said like being you know exploitive or gratuitous and it's within theme with the fine art this is a big especially like carol walker's silhouette work and the fact that anthony is a painter and also we have this fine art gentrification element because we have this dichotomy of what gentrification where it really comes from and this the artists being blamed for gentrification oh man that speech of this white woman blaming this black man for the gentrification of the community he was born in she's like your kind fuck yeah which and he's excuse me and she's at one point i was disappointed i was like they're they're gonna let her sashay away and get away with that hold on there's gotta be at some point where we come back and we reconcile oh oh, there it is okay (laughs) never mind there it is all right I stand corrected. I thought this movie did raise some interesting points about the cycles of gentrification and the way like the economic powers that be drive a cycle of poverty, exploitation and redevelopment for like themselves when reaping more and more at every turn. But yeah, no, for that movie, for that particular character to boil it down to artists create gentrification. Yeah. With such a reverse galaxy brain of a take <laughs> i thought yeah. this is just another example of the very short-term memory that racists have i know when it comes to the horrible things you've done and wanting to change the narrative at you yeah. know around it at some point i was like okay we see that again and I said, yeah. then i started in my head raging against critical race theory and i had to pull back and go back into the movie <laughs> yeah it's classic yeah. scapegoating and then she tries to turn around but that's just because his artwork becomes notorious because it's involved in a crime so which is also mentioned but anyway we'll get into that yeah we're, we're not quite to that yet because we mentioned the shadow puppet bit here and i think it's really interesting to me mm-hmm. that it's such a smart thing that what we're seeing is a urban legendized version of the story of the original candy man that it's been through telephone helen has turned into this monster who did all this stuff and the candy man has been raised from his own story at this point this movie knows that the themes of the candy man franchise have to be centered around the urban legend myth making of american black communities like specifically chicago i just love the way the movie puts the, that theme of myth making in the community front and center yeah, yeah. It's, it's not just in the community. It's also the idea of rewriting history is there as well in this version of the film. And then the idea of that like mimetic story, which is so much supposed to be the theme in the first movie, kind of effortlessly meshes in with the all capital letters stuff that this movie talks about. The comparison between the last movie and this movie as being this identity crisis of not having the vo- the vocabulary to, to describe itself yeah. is really astute, I think, because it was almost like a relief watching this movie because I'm like, they got it. Just so many moments like when Bree's white co-worker tells Anthony that 
trauma on the south side is played out and yeah. to just change your trauma to a more interesting location. We don't want to get political. That yeah, I, I, I your trauma is passe. Make it a more interesting trauma. This movie almost interacts with the first movie the way that the first movie interacts with the Clive Barker story of like, well, here's the thing, but let's make it different and better and more interesting. It's um, like a game of telephone where each is building on the last. I don't Emily mentioned the whole memetic quality. I think it's interesting that the story seems like it's pushing at the bounds of Cabrini Green because it ends up at that high school with the girls in the bathroom. And I wonder if there's a, a version of this story where it exits Chicago, like you get Candyman elsewhere. It just sort of propagates the way a meme or an urban legend might. They also discuss how all of this happened at Cabrini Green, which is a nearby neighborhood which uh, these towers have, have been knocked down and they've been replaced by these new developments, these high-rise towers with expensive condos and apartments, very much like the ones that they're in right now in this story. And the story inspires an interest Anthony so much because he's, he's looking for a new muse. He's looking for something to do with art. He feels like he's stagnant. So he decides to investigate the remains of the now closed row houses of Cabrini Green. And he's immediately stung by a bee, which he thinks sucks because he gets stung by a bee. All of us immediately who have seen the first movie are like, oh, bees, oh, whoa. Starts out as a bee sting and very quickly turns into his entire hand and then arm. And then that whole side of his body starting to fall apart. That is the source of the rotting ass necrotized hand. I have to ask, At what point do you look down at your hand and realize gangrene has set in and decide, nah, I'll just wrap it up? Before that. Yeah, that was wild. You let that cover his entire have health (laughs) care. I mean, yeah, but healthcare is expensive. Okay. So he he better look up some Obamacare or something. I don't know. He's got something's going on. He's picking away at it and hit it with peroxides and neosporin or just a little something. I feel like it went from zero to my hand is nothing but necrotized flesh. Yeah. So quickly. For real, though. I'm just spending the whole time like, if I can get to a doctor, man, free clinic, like emer- emergency room, this shit, this is not okay. Yeah, yeah. Then he finally decides to go to the doctor after he slowly picks off his rotting fingernail. That was the lie. only scene I had to look away from. That yeah, that, I, I have scene. to say, working in a hospital, we definitely get people who come in who have stuff that's like even more serious and they just want, like, why did you not come in like a week ago? I mean, like, that's just, at the very okay, least, it's like yeah, dunk that shit in aloe vera. Yeah, why did you wait till this was septic? <laughs> uh, I don't know if aloe vera is going to Make it not septic, though. That's just no, it would. Hey, what if you were allergic to bee stings, but in a weird way? I think it's just because it's a cursed bee. <laughs> I want to see the story about the cursed bees like coming back and killing all the murder hornets. You want bee movie, but Candyman? Except there's no humans. It's just like the regular honeybees are dying out. And so they have to like summon the cursed bees and kill all the invasive species of the murder hornet. I want to meet the like mysterious exposition man who makes honey out of the Candyman bees and sells this clearly cursed ass honey at like the Chicago farmer's market. But it's delicious. Are you talking about using murder hornets as an, a species coming from outside as a metaphor for gentrification in Chicago? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I feel like there's something there. Yeah, no, that's, that is what I'm saying is we're all pissed uh, off about invasive species. 
white this people is why murder African hornets. have such a bad rap. What was Brianna's line? It was something like white people built the ghetto, then erased it when they realized they built the ghetto. Yes. It was such a great line. Alicia would not watch this movie. Candyman scares her. But she was yeah. in the other room and heard this conversation. She was like, are they talking about redlining? She's she's a big hashtag housing discrimination and everything person. Um, that's legit. Mm-hmm. That's, a, yeah. that's very valid. Yeah. Any story about yeah. gentrification. Yeah. Yeah, Anthony pokes around these abandoned row houses full of graffiti and scary pictures, some of which are of Helen. And he just barely dodges the cops who are hanging around out there. And then he meets William Burke, who's played by Coleman Domingo, who runs the local laundromat. Burke tells him the story uh, of Helen Lyle uh, and how that actually connects to a story that's almost been forgotten of Candyman. And we learn that Burke is the kid from the original story at the beginning of this and that his first experience with the candy man was with a guy called sherman fields who is a disabled man with a hook for a hand who was handing out candy to the kids and then when some white girl got a razor blade and a piece of candy they pointed the finger at sherman and all the cops came down hard on cabrini green looking for him and he hid inside the walls and it is to some extent burke's fault he saw Sherman there at the beginning of this, that it was Sherman and not the traditional Candyman that we've seen, and that he, in screaming, alerted the police to that this guy had been hiding in the walls, and they came down and beat him to death there in front of him. I find it interesting that the crime that he is accused of is that razor blades in the Halloween candy, that itself is such an urban legend and such a, I, as far as I know, there's not a any real documented cases of that happening. And yet it's such a believable mass hysteria that we're still hearing about it and taking it into account like decades later, like year after year. Maybe there is one too. I am not going out on this like definitive position of there has never been a case of razor blades and Halloween candy ever. I am looking that up right now. My parents for several years when I was younger, when we would go out on Halloween, had it as part of their like regimented thing that after we came home with our candy, they would go through all of them and make sure that they had not been yep. tampered with before we realized yeah. anything. But uh, Which... yeah, like uh, again, an urban legend used to drive more urban legends. Are I gotta be understand honest. that this poor white girl got hurt because the like candy they show has a very obvious razor blade sticking out of it and you wouldn't put it in your mouth. Like, no, it's, yeah, it's like, like clear sugar. Anthony gets clear. cut by a razor blade in the candy. He can't open it up without getting cut. Did this girl eat it with the wrapper still on? That's the only explanation that makes sense is that this white girl ate that candy wrapper and all. I was watching as he was walking back up the stairs and, and Burke gets that look over his face. And I was just like, oh, yeah, there's that Jordan Peele stare that at least one person has to get in every Jordan Peele movie where he's just staring off into the distance. But I was just like, why are you not moving? What's happening? Why are you just... And at that the whole time, I was just waiting for a hook to come back from around that corner, you know, and snatch him up. But it turns out it didn't. And so then I had to ask myself later, did Burke... Did they fashion Burke into the reverse magical Negro? The, that he leads, he uses negative wisdom to lead our correct. also <laughs> yes. black yes. protagonist yes. to ruin. Yeah, yes. that'd be an interesting subversion. Yeah, I like that. You expect somebody, the you know, magical Negro to come out of nowhere and give you all the the blessed advice that leads you on the path to redemption and all that other stuff. The the 
Will, Will Smith in that film. Yeah, Will Bagger, Bagger Vance, where he teaches you how to Bagger play Vance. golf and be a yeah. good person. It sounds yeah. like a racial epithet, by the way. I feel like if anyone was called a Bagger Vance, you have every right to be like. I was going to say, you have to fight them. Deeply, <laughs> yeah. de- deeply offended. <laughs> oh, my God. I feel like Burke was like, we're going to flip this on his head and we're going to. Yeah, we're going to give you some sage advice that's going to get everyone killed. Yeah. So One of the things I like, Burke is telling the story and he says the police swarmed him. But at the end, he also refers to the police as the swarm. He says, here comes the swarm. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that like a swarm killed both the original Candyman and then this version of Candyman as well. Only this time it's the police. Well, it's interesting than- that that language is used because... Don't they use to describe all the other black men that have been killed fulfilling the imagery mm-hmm. of Candyman? Don't they refer to that collective as the hive at one point? Yeah. Right. Yes. It's not a man, it's a hive, I think, or something like that. Yeah, it's yeah. part of the hive. So we get Anthony's fascinated by the story. He starts painting more excitedly like a man possessed. He gets a, he makes this whole painting of Sherman's death, which he's very excited to to show to Brianna, and he's he wants to make a whole exhibition out of this for the summer show where he's not been sure what he's going to show. This is the point where he, when he's talking about the Candyman myth with Brianna, Anthony looks in the mirror and says Candyman five times, which if having seen the original, that's when shit starts to go wrong. Like even if he doesn't show up right away, yeah. uh, which you can see him in the window at that point. If you know you, you look closely enough, you can see the jacket in the window and the reflection he bases the exhibition on Candyman. he calls it say my name and includes the instructions for how to summon Candyman in the description of the piece which is then insulted by the gallery manager as well as the critic who we talked about who talks down to him and tells him that his kind artists are the pioneers of gentrification and everybody other than Brianna is just basically shitty to him about this. He gets drunk and storms off and says shit to everybody on the way out. I do want to point out just the amazing exchange he has with the white gallery owner so where he says, I think it's on the effect of, shouldn't you be stocking up on plan B to fund your summer? <laughs> His oh response though is that whole moment was like comedic incredible i love his self-affirmation was i can take being called a bitch he's like i can take it i'm like wow is that where you're okay i guess that's what you do (laughs) yeah i was really busy enjoying this movie until the scene came up and then i started having to write shit down because all of the things coming out of everybody's mouths is so fucking genius i also wrote down his whole artist statement which is uh i'm trying to align these move moments in time that exist in the same place the idea is to almost calibrate tragedy into a focused lineage that culminates in the now. Which Jesus, if that's not the movie. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. holy shit. And so his piece that he has, you say that you could say Candyman in the mirror. And it's basically, a it, it looks just like a mirror, but you open it up like a medicine cabinet and it has these images of violence that he's painted inside. And people are insulting him saying that he's like, where did you find those paintings? Were they in like a thrift store? Because his, his style is very like simplistic. I say simplistic, but it's it's not meant as a dig. It's iconic. Yeah. Seeing them not like his exhibit further affirm my belief that I don't understand how the fuck fine art is supposed to work. <laughs> it's all subjective and it all depends on who's doing what and its trends and it's it's bullshit. But it's been gentrified. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing is it all relies on critics to say what is good. 
And then people are like, oh, yeah, I agree, because I don't know what kind of opinion to have. I do also, want to talk for a minute about the name of the piece, that it is called Say My Name. And it is such a like clear reference to these things that are ongoing now, the, this this call to, to say the names of people who have been uh, unjustly murdered by police well, and when in other cases just haven't had justice for these killings and how closely this movie aligns that to this overwhelming pain that, that creates this monster of the Candyman. I feel like, though, in the real world, if someone saw that piece titled Say My Name, at least one person's response out loud would have been, like the TLC song? <laughs> I think there's like, wasn't there a trailer that used yes, it, these Child? Like, yes. I, yeah, that's where my mind went. It was like, oh, oh yeah. Is- <laughs> oh, yes. Not, not TLC. The uh, Yes. Destiny's Child. Yes. <laughs> my, my bad. Yes. And uh, yeah, they used it. But I just thought, like, it's just such an iconic song title. You wouldn't think someone would have met. It was like it a wink and a nudge, I think. After everything closes down, Clive and Jerrica are hanging around talking shit about both Anthony and Brianna. And how Brianna is going to get fired and so on and so forth. And finally, they decide to fuck around and summon Candyman. And this is where we get the first like real Candyman murders in this movie. And they are amazing because the Mm -hmm. rules of Candyman in this are that you can only see him in the mirror, but he is affecting the real world. I love it. I love love that concept. He kills Jericho first and just for a little bit just leaves Clive freaking the fuck out. <laughs> is this real? I adore the bit where like he can see Candyman in the mirror as he is cutting the fabric that like the they're screen. replaying the clip on. So you can see the screen ripping with no indicated purpose as to why it is ripping until he looks in the mirror and you can see Candyman cutting it with his hook in the mirror. And then he tries to run for the door and gets uh, dragged back by the leg by some invisible force and uh, is then, you know, slashed open and left there for poor Brianna to find the next morning. It's so through the ankle too. Oh, it's gruesome. It's it's such a great, like, it's not campy, but like, it was just, it was brilliant. And I think we got a nod to Velvet Buzzsaw as well as this movie for showing us that art galleries are really great horror movie settings yeah always kill people in art galleries who knows that could be part of it that's a twofer you kill yeah. you make art it's, it's killing Chris two Burton birds with one stone it. and then displaying the stone okay uh so we cut to brianna discovering them the next morning anthony hears the news report and he's excited about the fact that they say the name of his piece and his name on the tv troy's reaction is incredible it's such a true crime mood though like Clive was an asshole. It sucks for his his like 18-year-old intern, but if she was that. I was going to say, I don't wish ill on anyone, but if I can deliver just an absolutely devastating insult and then you die, that's a dope thing for me. Like, <laughs> right? <laughs> for Brianna at this point has uh, a nightmare about finding the bodies, which is tied into the PTSD of watching her mentally ill father jump out a window and commit suicide in front of her. Which is, it's that is the roughest part of the movie for me. But no, I think what's worse are his last words to her. Did you know your dad could fly? God. I thought one of the most brilliant turns, because I have to be honest, there was a point where I'm just like, Brianna is too good for this man. <laughs> because he, on multiple occasions, was a full-blown asshole. 
you know, to her that I couldn't quite understand why, other than how good the dick must have been, as was said by Troy. But I couldn't quite understand why she was putting up with that. And then you get that scene and then you get Troy's statement later. And I'm like, okay, now it's all tracking. The common thought, you marry the man, the most like your dad or something to that effect. So I'm thinking, okay, she's out here looking for these dammers because I got to be honest, at first I thought Troy was a little bit of an asshole because he kept harping. And I'm like, this guy seems great. Why are you harping on him? It's like, okay, now I get it. He's probably sat by and watched his sister go from damaged to damaged, gaining nothing for herself, but supporting someone else. And it all came full circle to me. And I got it. I'm like, okay, now it makes sense. I, I get this whole thread because even then I wasn't sure that was an interesting scene for Brianna's backstory, but I don't understand how it connects to everything. But then finally all, all the pieces fell in place for me. And I'm like, okay, this is, I don't know if you can actually call this horror because I think this is a little bit more than that. I, I just felt like this sort of stepped outside the boundaries of horror and, and actually told a story. We keep talking about the relationship between the 92. Listen, in 92, they just wanted you to die in the bloodiest and, and at times most comical way that was going to get the most word of mouth and get people in there. I, I don't think they really cared about the subtext or the, the emotional baggage that each character had. This, I think, gave you all of that and more. And the pieces started to fall in place as I was, the longer I watched it, it took me by surprise. Yeah, I would argue the emotional subtext and the weirdness of the original Candyman is part of why it doesn't have always the same sort of uh, following that something like something abysmal like Friday the 13th or something slightly better like Nightmare on Elm Street that does go in for the gross kills and the most amount of blood possible. But I think that's part of why Candyman has continued to be an underground favorite of people's as opposed to having a new one that comes out every year. But yeah, I I think this is a really, it's a really affecting scene and it's followed up by one of the, the more disturbing scenes because we get Anthony going to the college library to dig up info on Helen Lyle and he finds her old case recordings from the first movie when she is, you know, studying Candyman, including the recordings of the woman from the opening of the first movie where she's telling the original story. That was the right amount of Helen Lyle. Okay, some archive footage, some recorded dialogue. I, I, I didn't need that character showing up as being like, I'm a competing ghost you now have to worry about. I was like, <laughs> it was the perfect amount. Yeah. yeah. She's there. We acknowledge her. Let's stick to let's stick to the themes here. And uh, he saying, gets, this he ain't gets... her story any fucking more. Yeah. <laughs> and while she he's listening Trevor, to this, he she's gets... dead. <laughs> yeah. While he's listening to this, he gets into this creepy mirrored all the way around elevator. Nope. And. And we get absolutely not (laughs) encounter with with the Candyman in the ceiling of the elevator. Takes it to EBDB. Incredibly creepy. Oh, so creepy! This infinite elevator, (laughs) bad elevator design. Really, they should have thought of like ahead. What if Candyman appeared? We shouldn't be one of the elevator. Obviously. Yeah, I, I think like. The, the image of him looking up at the ceiling and seeing like Candyman reflected down on him is like, it's incredibly done and it's very creepy. Yeah. And then, you know, they cut to the elevator finally reaching the ground and him scrounging around on the floor as all these college students get ready to walk into the elevator and the students react. I think the way college students were, <laughs> they, they're all, that was weird. 
All right. I did appreciate all the students being like, we're at the library at whatever time it is. We don't have the energy to be dealing with whatever the fuck you're dealing with. We got papers that are due. Yeah, it's college. If someone's like falling down in an elevator, it's it happens. We've all been there. Yeah. He goes back. He's continuing to paint stuff like a madman. Brianna is, you know, trying to set up this dinner with a big time art collector who's coming into town who's going to want to possibly make her an offer to, to work with him or at least make some introductions and he gets a call from somebody and runs out and turns out he's going to meet the same critic we met earlier who really wants to interview him about his piece now after just completely reaming him about it at the actual exhibition she is now writing some big piece that includes not just the the piece itself but all of the the murder and everything is tying it back around and as he points out to her she wants to be a part of the story and dares her to if she really wants to be a part of the story to do it to say his name in the mirror i feel like this movie was wise not to spend too much time on it because it would have made the movie like bloated but i feel like there's just enough of that like just this undercurrent like loki like it's just an afterthought but it's there of just this real condemnation of the true crime genre. And I was like, ooh, <laughs> people have been dead. Now we're interested in, now we're interested in a story of this systemic issue. Now that there's a gruesome, sexy white people that got murdered to go with it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's even mentioned by Burke at some point. It might be after the initial exposition. Yeah. yeah. He's talking about girl X and such. No one hears about no remembers, but you let a white person die and the whole country shuts down. Yeah, I love that detail, the grounding this arguably fictional like mythos in these actual Cabrini Green stories of this is a crime that happened and this is a thing that like we're blending the two together so you can't really tell where one ends and the other begins. Like I loved that. Yeah. Yeah. What I love in this scene is after she goes off to the bathroom and she is summoning Candyman in the mirror, he is looking at her big hallway mirror after he he picks a chunk out of his hand he's oof, he, oof, he wraps oof, it in a dish towel and then is looking at himself in the mirror and sees himself as Candyman. the should have wrapped thing, it in one of those joseph albers paintings that have made them make them a lot more exciting to look at yeah the the thing that gets me about that scene is like him seeing the bee and trying to touch the bee and the bee being on the other side of the mirror glass which is that was a moment in the movie where i was like whoa Mm -hmm. they just they just did some shit in this movie and then he sees his reflection and his reflection is candyman i am such a sucker anytime in any movie when someone looks in a mirror and their reflection doesn't match what they're doing i fall for it every time and it it always creeps me out like reflections not doing what reflections are supposed to will always freak me the fuck out well, and their movements, too, in that scene were off-putting, almost. Mm-hmm. Um, I know they worked with the movement coach to make sure that their movements matched, but I believe the coach also had them, like, make the movements slightly off-putting, like, not normal. The posture was oddly Yeah, like, It doesn't yeah. feel like a natural position your body would take. Exactly. Yeah, and I, I think one of the really interesting details for me is my inclination would be to use Tony Todd as frequently as possible, but he has not heard the story of Daniel Robichaud yet. He only knows about Sherman 
And that is who he's seeing. It's the Candyman is this character that we are introduced to early on in this movie. And he's this is the story he knows. So this is who he's seeing. And as you know more about it, it gets more elaborate and has more faces. And the Tony Todd is there. And when he shows up, such good payoff. Because we are introduced incrementally, like from the present day back to the origin of Candyman slowly. But we're also at the same time, those of us have seen the, the original movie, recognize the slowly accumulating references to that mythos. And then it's interesting too, because he looks at his hand and his hand is fucked up. And that's where Brett and I were like, he was a painter who lost his hand. And I was seeing that symmetry and I was like, oh, that's really good. And he is disturbed by the, the woman walking back out of the bathroom and his hallucination of Candyman disappears. But this is the scene I was talking about where there's him in the foreground looking at his reflection in this mirror and it is looking back at him and then her behind him and then her bathroom behind her. And you can see like the Candyman in the reflection of her, her mirror in the bathroom. And like he he says, oh, I have to go. And leaves. and like you see the Candyman move in the mirror. You might not have even like seen that he was there before. And no sooner does he leave then she comes out into the uh, the front room of her apartment and we see her get lifted up off the ground and wiped across the entire wall of the house as the camera just pulls slowly out across Chicago. Yeah. And there's also something about that hallway when he's going through that hallway and he's accessing the, the doorbell or whatever you can tell that building has also been like super gentrified because the interiors it's it's definitely built up from something that was not quite art critic level and the fact that this art critic is living in this building and also has this whole spiel about how artists bring it like they gentrify the hood is fantastic irony so yeah the hallways are all curved theoretically i would think because they used to be small single units throughout there and they've knocked down the walls and they've had to curve the hallways so that you can fit the larger fancy apartments in there where there used to be a whole bunch of like single unit family homes and they've made the whole front side glass and everything so yeah that that whole apartment is creepy as shit <laughs> so he he goes on to dinner where brianna is being courted by multiple you know curators and art critics and uh, they find out during the dinner that this art critic has been murdered and anthony runs out to go see burke and uh, nothing tells- suspicious at all just oh people have been murdered i saw recently uh, <laughs> i have to leave this art I mean, guy double wildly out of the restaurant uh, this nobody else knows that, just- that he went to see her because yeah. he didn't tell he didn't tell brianna anything about where he was going this is definitely our token old white asshole character yeah there was one in the previous movie the old like professor that was just why didn't he die? Oh, Candyman Country. I already yeah. talked about that five years ago. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say, it's hard to be quite as unlikable as Xander Berkeley when he's given you the full Burke. Yeah. <laughs> Once again, not a knock on Xander Berkeley as an actor, just saying he's very talented at playing unlikable characters. <laughs> Anthony goes to see Burke. And this is where we get the exposition of the candy, the, the new Candyman lore. Um, and Burke tells him that Candyman isn't a man. He's a hive. The first was Daniel Robitaille, whom Helen had researched in the, in the original movie. But there are several others, several black men who have been killed unjustly and incredibly violently in this same area. And it has created this sort of stain on the, the land. And it 
this Candyman isn't just a ghost. He isn't just a guy that kills people. He is the like manifestation of the collective trauma of this community over time. And he is, he is important. Yeah. Yeah. And this is where we get the line. Candyman is the way we deal with the fact that these things happen and that they are still happening. Which Which, is, yeah, it's, I think this is the same scene where he delivers the, they don't, they love what we make. They don't love us too. Which is just both. Oh man. Yeah. So Anthony is trying to explain all of this Candyman stuff to Brianna. He is clearly freaking out. She is freaking out looking at all these paintings he's made of these grotesque dead figures of all these you know previous men who are part of the Candyman mythos. They do slap though, these new paintings. Like yeah. they're fucking cool. Oh yeah, they're, they are cool as hell. They are scary. Yeah, they actually and... used a black artist um, to create the paint, a Chicago artist to create the paintings for them. Yeah, these are, they're gorgeous, like big impasto oil paintings with some, it's the kind. Actually, all the art in the art gallery, they had local Chicago black artists submit their works to the um, art gallery scene. Awesome. Yeah. I would wake up screaming at those those paintings every day because they are just, they did what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to, you know, remind you of games. I, I would not be able to unsee that. I would be looking yeah. at them like an abject fear every time I walked into my house. So yeah, which I, I feel is reasonably the way Brianna reacts. <laughs> She's <laughs> like, what the fuck? What the fuck is all of this? And uh, he's like, I don't think you should see this. I don't think I should have done this. I think this is a mistake. And then he just starts smashing mirrors. She runs off to, to Troy's house to tell them about all this shit. And Troy tells her that he told her not to date that crazy, broke, Basquiat motherfucker. <laughs> 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 yeah, there, he has like several things that he like a lot of comparisons but Basquiat is the one that I wrote down yeah they are doubtful the Candyman is real and the choice is who would even try that and of course we we get flashed over to the local high school where the high school girl we saw at the art show is asking her friends if uh, they've ever heard of this Candyman thing uh, this there's... girl is is dancing with death because not only because she has the audacity to try to send him a candy man, but also she kisses a school mirror with her mouth. Yes. <laughs> Oof. Gross. She rubs her also, lipstick on it and then, yeah, and then kisses it with her mouth too. I did not realize until right now that she was the girl at the art show. I did not. Yeah. I, just I like, did not put I that thing, to two like, together. Oh, cut to white girls. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. They'll look the same. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) blonde white girls. To their to their credit, this group of white girls doesn't all look the same. It's a pretty diverse group of white girls. Um, Yeah, one of whom is an Asian girl (laughs) who fucking runs the fuck out after the fourth Candyman. And I'm guessing she's going to end up being the protagonist of the next Candyman (laughs) revival, like 15 years from now. No, she's going to keep that same energy. She's like, oh, Candyman, I'm going to be out of town. Like, (laughs) I like the 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 one non-white girl is the one who's we do get knows better. We do get arguably our one. No, wait, because we have the wonderful queer representation of or at least the wise queer representation who don't die and manage to just stay the fuck out of everyone's horror nonsense of Grady and Troy. But we also possibly get a little more queer representation from one of these girls who just dies really quickly. 
Yes, it's the same we girl. Talk about and, and one of the girls, uh, <laughs> one of the girls tells us not to be not to be a vagina, and she says why they're uh, warm and wonderful. I'm taking yeah, that as warm and wonderful that thing. Hey, we we we're good at grasping at straws on this show. I'm taking it as some queer rep, even if she <laughs> is not a character and dies within two minutes. I mean, yeah, she's I, her name is Boof, so I think it's like she's a Pokemon. <laughs> so like there's an extended version of this scene um in the special features where it's it becomes more clear what's going on between them and the the black girl who walks in part of the way through them summoning Candyman and locks herself in the stall which is that they are watching a video that one of them has taken of her from the party the night before where she got too drunk and did something embarrassing and they posted it online, which is uh, why they're making fun of her before she gets in. And then when she comes in uh, in the actual film, you definitely hear them ask if she still has a hangover. Yeah. Um, yeah. But like their conversation before the Candyman stuff starts is extended in the deleted scene. And some of it still happens in the background, but it's hard to tell exactly what they're talking about at the beginning of the scene because they're having a chat while the girl is kissing the mirror in the background. But yeah, they everybody but the Asian girl goes ahead and finishes out saying Candyman five times and uh, nothing happens and they all decide to leave. But then the door is locked and they summarily get murdered. One of the girls seems to see Candyman in her little handheld mirror. Such um, a good detail. Yeah. That compact mirror was like, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. But it didn't occur to me like, tiny mirror, if you could show up there. Like, yeah, yeah. she looks in it. We don't see what she sees, but she is clearly freaked out by it. And one of the other girls runs back around the corner. She's like, no, I don't think you should. And then <laughs> next thing we see of her is just a, a small river, a waterfall of blood. <laughs> yeah, that was weird. That's that tension. There was just enough space in between her going around that corner. And then the first couple drops of blood and then everything else. It was that tension ratcheted up for me. I, my anxiety was flying out because I was like, clearly everyone's dead. But in the back of my mind, I was still thinking, just let the girl in the toilet live. Just let the girl in the toilet live. She's not a part of this. She's not in it. <laughs> she, she's just, she didn't say this. She didn't, summon, she didn't summon nothing. Did she live? I thought she did. Yeah, she, she did. I think she okay. did. Yeah. I did she live? She's yeah. got PTSD, Candyman isn't. Oh, big time. For sure, PTSD. Victim. If she didn't have a drinking problem before, it's, oh. it's not looking yeah. good for her now. She's going straight to rehab. Yeah, because yeah, she, she sees some of what's actually going on in the compact mirror when it falls on the floor. After the first girl is killed and the blood goes from like a light trickle to just to a, a full on gushing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What what is happening? Blood. Yes. That caught me off guard. Yes. And then the other girl. <laughs> there was one, but it shouldn't be funny. I don't know why it was funny to me. But of the main Regina George, like trying to get away. I'm like, where are you going? Just accept your death. You're not, you can <laughs> barely move. She's <laughs> like, pooping. No she one's coming for you. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? Toilet girl's going to come save you? No, she's hungover. Yeah. I wonder if you get. can resist Candyman if you're wearing like a beekeeper outfit. Probably hmm. not. Yeah, I don't think so. So we, we get back. I guess maybe if it's a- finally. Anthony finally decides that his fucking hand is fucked up enough that he can finally go to the fucking hospital for it. Right. Um, Because it's literally falling apart. His fucking fingernail slides off in his hand. 
And he's maybe I should go to the doctor. Going on with his whole arm. I watched this whole movie mostly in the dark and I was fine for all of it. And that was the one bit that I was like, no, no, stop. It's that. It's when he's in the art critics apartment and he starts peeling his skin and it's way too much too deep. And then (laughs) what happens in the church? That thing is like a, that thing is like jar lid size on his hand already i don't know how anybody could have not smelled that I, i'm 100 percent with the girl who's next to him at the dinner who like sees him picking at his hand and just maybe don't you shouldn't do <laughs> She's that like, stop it yeah. so anthony finally is is at the hospital and the woman the nurse says hey welcome back and he doesn't know what the fuck she's talking about and he's like i saw in your file that you were born here and he's like no i was born on the south side and she's like uh no you were born here it's right here in your record and so he decides that uh, he's gonna go talk to his mom and this is where we get to uh, re-meet vanessa e williams who was the mom from the original movie who has it's been 30 years and she has not aged 30 years. It is no, unfair. It she, she is gone from her 20s to her 30s. This is a scene yeah. where yeah, I mean, we are led to believe that this man in his early 30s is talking to his mother who appears to be in her mid thirties. <laughs> there appears to be looks the like, same age. Yeah. yeah. They, they, there is four years difference between these two at most. I thought it was a girlfriend at first. <laughs> If you told me that in real life, Vanessa E. Williams and Yahya Abdul-Mateen II were dating, I'd be like, good for both of them. (laughs) Yeah, and she's not in this movie a whole lot, but the little bit she is, she really delivers because he is asking her lots of leading questions and he's she's just fielding them sideways and not answering what she knows is coming. And he tells her what he's found out. As soon as he says the name Candyman, her reaction is she's like claps and like (laughs) shushes him and shakes a finger like that combo that she does is so real and simultaneously like scary. (laughs) Yeah, it was the the way she's superstitious when she does it. It's it's not just a shushing. It's like a a little ritual to cancel out whatever you just started. (laughs) She sells the whole thing with her eyes. She doesn't have to do all of that stuff like to let you know, but she is clearly not okay with that name being said and actually tells us that specifically after Anthony, who is the baby from the original Candyman, was yes. saved um, by Helen Lyle, that like they all, everybody who was there, they all decided that they were not going to say that name anymore. And that is how... Candyman disappeared and Helen Smith's rose up to overtake it. And that somebody, if he knows about Candyman, that somebody has broken that pact. Man, and it's it's great delivery. Like he he doesn't know any of this. He thinks he was born on the south side. So obviously he is upset with all of this. And she says they were sure that Candyman wanted him for a purpose. And uh, he then goes back to Cabrini to start looking for that purpose and wanders into one of the row houses where there's lights flashing. And then we we jump over to Brianna, who is off looking for him. He's not at home. He's not anywhere. So she goes looking for him at the laundromat that he has talked about. He uh, does such a good job of selling just this sense of, I don't know if it's more hopelessness or more acceptance of after he has this conversation with his mother and he just trails off into Cabrini Green like he did. He definitely knows at this point that whatever Candyman wants with him is inescapable. 
Mm-hmm. Like he is, there's no attempts to resist whatever is happening to him after that. Yeah, it's it's going down one way or another. Yeah, she goes to the laundromat and goes looking for him. She finds his hat there and then finds that she has been locked inside the back room of the laundromat. We get another one of these great deep shots where she's like trying to knock on the door to get out of this back room and we can see her behind the glass and we see somebody up front doing their laundry that doesn't hear it. Then we see Burke like rush in and pull her off into the background. And just as this person turns around and sees nobody there. The horror with that they achieve with the deep shots in this movie is so well done and such a marker of visual style for this film. Like I don't see this employed very often, never mind so frequently and so effectively. It does make you begin to think how much shit is going on around me every day that I don't see that I'm not, <laughs> that I'm not aware of. Someone just snatched what's going on. It really does make you question your environment and the things that you could miss, which again, ratchets up the tension and the horror because now you're like all right what was that no joke while i was starting out the movie the first 15 minutes of this movie because i decided to watch the movie all right if the movie's super scary sometimes i'll watch it upstairs in the big you know open space where all the fun things are that i'm not afraid of if i'm really into a movie i watch it downstairs like the the man room with the big 75 inch and all that stuff so i was like all right let me just lean into this and go downstairs of course it's dark you know down there and all that stuff and while i'm sitting there there's because it was has been raining a lot in the area my sump pump goes off (laughs) and it goes off at critical points and I swear I had to go change clothes after that because I'm like, <laughs> I, I was not prepared for that random noise to come out of the blue at a critical point. It's like a thud and then like water you hear spewing Absolutely out not. the front. I was, just yeah. like, I was like, I was not prepared. I had to stop. <laughs> nope. Nope. I was like, all right, <laughs> pull yourself together. I then told Alexa to turn all the lights on. And that's how I watched the rest of the movie. <laughs> so just saying. That may have happened. Yes. <laughs> but I don't watch these alone. I don't know starters. what I was thinking. I really don't know what I was thinking. But I mean, some of us no don't choice. have the ability to watch them with people. So there's that. The dog was there. And I do. I will say there are certain points where the dog chose to growl quite viciously at the screen. And things <laughs> happening. I think she was very invested in the film. So my dog was not a fan of the soundtrack of this movie. Like literally as soon as that the opening credits with the mysterious music over chicago came in he was like peace out um i'm gonna be in the other room (laughs) so this is the point where we get another flashback for burke in which he is being shut out by his older sister who is playing a game in the other room and we hear her saying the name of Candyman in the mirror in the other room and then he tries to rush in to be part of it and finds her dead and lying against the door and then we get to uh modern day burke who has knocked out brianna and tied her up in the in the church so that she can be witness to the new Candyman being born because anthony is falling apart literally i do have to say there's a bit with the in the flashback where burke sees the candy man in the mirror and he shushes he does this sh- yeah. with his hook mm-hmm. which is yeah. That was the first killing in the movie that really made me, I felt sad for. Because I'm like, oh, the little girl, why? why? Yeah. Why? It's also the only time he kills a black person. I was just like, why? That just, 
that scene confused me because I was like, why are you idolizing now the man that killed your sister? I don't know. I, I was trying to understand that relationship there. It took me a minute. Yeah. Because I, I think he goes to some lengths to explain what the deal is with him and Candyman in this the scene that follows that, which is that he thinks that Candyman is important. And the, as soon as they got rid of Candyman and it was replaced with the myth of this white woman trying to burn a baby that like all of the white people came in and gentrified the place and they knocked down the towers and they took over. So I think to his mind and possibly to the movie's mind, Candyman is a, he is a ghost of sorts, but he is also the protector of this place who's keeping out these other elements that have chased them out of their homes. He makes it clear that this, that Candyman exists as a stain on this place where this pain that you cannot get out has just worn the whole place thin and that he exists to embody that rage and that pain and that he takes these many different forms of these different people who have been these different black men who have been murdered here over time and in the process also sets up anthony to become the next one of those people because he calls the cops and deliriously tells them that he has seen the say my name killer and that there's a, a hook-handed man running around threatening people in the old Greeny projects. And he then saws off the your boy's hand and, and sticks a, a full hook right into that open wound. What gets me there is there's no reaction that Anthony has when his hand's being cut off. And then just the tears with the no react, no other facial expression change. When the hook is jammed in. Oh, did that just give me the heebie-jeebies inside and out? That was rough. Although as like much there's as much the the whole body horror thing was upsetting. The idea of his like body being all full of holes that are like a honeycomb. I was like, yeah, I'm gonna, that's good. That's, that's that's insane. That was yeah, awesome creature design. I love that. Yeah, that was yeah. that was such. That I thought that was such an interesting update to the bees and the torso while still being its own kind of different interpretation of like beehive man and i know i talked about how good coleman domingo is but fuck after this turn reveal that he is like intentionally bringing about this to bring back the myth and power of candy man like he is so good it's like when it's the same as when an actor gets revealed as the killer in Scream and then their performance instantly becomes like three times as good because they just get to choose scenery. And he just goes from exposition to like villain exposition. And it's, (laughs) oh, I I could listen to it all day. Mad like preacher vibes up there. And it's not just because he's standing at the pulpit. Like he is deliriously yelling wide eyed and like, completely believe in this you can make really make the story your own but some of the specifics should be somewhat consistent decided that yeah this is like a jazz standard like we can play with the idea of candy bit but there are certain notes we have to hit like the hulk is one of them yeah. i mean and it, it's, you it know, reminded me a little <laughs> of matrix resurrections in that we just have okay we are bringing back an old franchise to a certain degree, let's just confront that head on, especially in a story like Candyman, where it is a story about stories. Let's just take that bull by the horns and what it means to be rebooting this franchise. 
Yeah, there, there are some things in the sort of that, that feel like they're a thing Nia DaCosta brought. There are some things that you can't really tell where the Jordan Peele and Nia DaCosta stuff splits. And this feels very much like a Jordan Peele thing. Oh, yeah. I'm going to straight up say what I'm doing. Yes. Mm-hmm. you. I'm remaking Candyman. We're doing it a little bit different than what it was before. But we got to hit some of the notes. Like, he's got to have a hook. We got to do the bees. That's got to be there. I recognize this. And I'm gonna I'm gonna have the characters say it. <laughs> yeah. I love that it was a foregone conclusion because it could have become something that would extend the scene or just again make it seem bloated. That it was a foregone conclusion that the plan is we're gonna call the police on a black man looking suspicious in the neighborhood, and they are going to shoot him. So I'm going to get what I want. It didn't even take any more complicated a plan than that from that perspective. That he's just like it. And it's just going to happen. All we got to do is set the stage and make a phone call and this is going to happen. So then I still allowed myself to be lulled into a sense of security when we get to the scene where she's holding him and he's literally laying on the ground, mm-hmm. like doing nothing. And I'm like, all right, we're good. We're done now. He's going to have to figure out what's going on with that hand and get some, see a dermatologist or something, but maybe he he will, you know, he come out of this one. A lot of dermatologists. Brianna breaks loose and runs off and Burke decides to chase her down, follows her through this basement and attacks her. She runs up out of the basement into one of the other row houses and he comes in after her. He, she tries to hit him with a big piece of metal and is not quite strong enough to pull it up. So she grabs the fucking pen out of her pocket and stabs him to death with the pen. That scene literally made me audibly laugh, dropping that piece of metal and then turning around. What the fuck? I love that. That, I, that was oh, that again. Was too funny. I, that's why I think as legitimately scary as this movie is, and as much as it like is horror at its best, there are these tiny moments of, of physical comedy sprinkled throughout. When okay. Anthony comes in, he's like, "I think he's dead." Yeah, yeah, yeah. and she's yeah. like stabbing the shit. Like she's been, she puts as many holes in his face with that pen that Anthony, that Anthony has, has from the bees. <laughs> yeah, she like more than double tapped that shit. She's final girl material. She knows you got to hit the killer more than once. Yeah, with with a laundromat pen, no less. From his own laundromat. <laughs> Look at yeah. that full circle. Yeah. I hope I never get stabbed to death with my own merch. <laughs> Me exactly. <laughs> full circle. That's the only way I want to go. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So. You know, she's, she's holding him. Anthony comes and collapses into her arms. And you hear the cops roll up outside. And the the guy comes in and she is begging him to help. And the cop immediately tells her to get, get her arms up and then puts several bullets into Anthony before trying to seek any sort of explanation. Anthony is on the floor, by the way. I just yeah. want to say he's like on he is prone. They haul her out in handcuffs and throw her in the back of a truck. That was my only question going into that scene was, are they going to kill Brianna and Anthony or just Anthony? Oh, like that was my only question. I I knew there. Yeah, I thought they shot her, too. But there was no point where even on the ground, it was just like, nope, there is no way Anthony is making it out of this. This final scene is beautiful. Because she gets hauled in the back of that car and left there for a few minutes. And then one of the police comes in and says, all right, this is what you're going to say. You're going to say he made this attempt to to hurt my guy and he shot him necessarily. Or we're going to make this really hard on you. This is how it's going to happen. 
And she says she'll say whatever he wants. She just wants to see herself in the mirror. And then says Candyman five times. And Candyman shows up and fucking slaughters everybody. And he's just this like swarm of bees. And he does this bit where after he's killed the rest of the cops, he walks around the cop car and you can see his face is covered by these bees, but his reflection is each of the different murdered men in the window as he walks around it. As he gets to the front, the car unlocks itself. And when the cop looks up, he is gone. When Brianna summons Candyman, just the relish and increased joy on her face with every progressive candy man which is starts out so serious and by the end is just like elation with the last time she summons him it's such a because honestly like this corrupt cop and her in this backseat is some of those like sickeningly horrifying moments because of like just the horrifying corrupt realness of it and to then immediately get the catharsis of her just taking back such power and doing it so with with bliss is the only word i can think followed by just that absolute fucking slaughter oh i also like that line that uh Candyman said as he's going around where i've got that pulled up it was so good they will say i shed innocent blood you are far from innocent but they'll say you were and compare that to the line in the beginning of the first movie where he says, they will say, I spilled innocent blood. What's blood for if not for shedding? So good. He's going to need a help lawyer is all I'm I, saying. I think it also just shows the evolution in of Candyman in that yeah. if 92 Candyman was most preoccupied with perpetuating himself for his own sake, 2021 Candyman is clearly a... He's woke. He's woke. Yeah, he is woke. Yeah. He's a, he's he a spirit. Revenge. He is a spirit yeah. with a societal mission. She runs to chase behind this cop who has run off, who is trying to get away. And she sees Candyman pick up and slaughter this guy. And he turns and looks at her. And it is Tony Todd's face. And he says, tell everyone. And that's that's the end of the movie. Yeah. So what I loved about that tell everyone, right, is you have Burke saying, now we've got a witness when he like brings her into all this nonsense. You have the cops trying to mess with her witness testimony. And now she's like, literally a witness like i saw it happen i can tell you with my own eyes he messed everyone up i'm going to perpetuate this story like, this is fantastic <laughs> yeah but now she's got nine dead cops on the ground and she's in handcuffs well, where do you go where do you walk to the starbucks down the street and figure out what your next move is i, well, I think you're, you're screwed basically there yeah. is a deleted alternate ending where it takes place after this and it's just her having a gallery dedicated entirely now to candy man art although like i get wanting to end with the impact of that like tell everyone because the alternate ending she's having an opening of all of his art and it's all hanging around and they're having a big party you don't really hear anybody but you just see how busy it is everybody's there seeing the stuff and at the end of it because everybody leaves she walks up to the mirror and the last thing that happens is there's this intake of breath like she's about to say something and then it cuts and i was like yeah, that's good too. They're both good. I'm honestly torn about which I personally like would end the movie with if I had to choose. They're both really powerful. I mean, I like the one that we have now because I feel like the more questions you beg, just like Erin, you talking about the like, how does she get? Wait, how does she get? What happened? How did she get out of that? 
How do you explain that? What, yeah, <laughs> what's your for next real. move? Because I was thinking, I was remembering when they were first putting her into the back of the police car, I had closed captions on as I was watching because mm-hmm. I'm too lazy to turn them off. But as they were coming out, the one cop was like, we don't know what to do now. What are we doing? How do we, how do we, how do we fix that? And I'm like, oh, okay. So they're just going to take it down I'm, from the beginning. I'm going to say she probably just got away by like, if no one knew she was there specifically, if she just ran the fuck away before any other cops or people came around who would know that she was there in the first place. Yeah, all the cops are gone. And I was thinking maybe the last uh, favor that Candyman did for her was cut off her handcuffs with his hook. But her fingerprints are on the big piece of metal that she couldn't lift. But her fingerprints aren't in the system. Nobody's going to know. That's true. And this bit on the credits, which is all like all the puppetry of all the horrible things that happened to all the men who make up Candyman that was spellbinding as well. Like the whole credits thing, I was sitting there watching. I wasn't going anywhere through throughout that. Again, they've blended in nonfiction. A couple of those stories are actual crimes that happen. So it's blending of the fiction of Candyman with the here actual atrocities that happen, you know, racial violence and such. Yeah, which I, I think has always yeah. sort of been part of Candyman because of because of Cabrini Green being included as the the setting and the fact that you know this original idea of this Candyman murder is taken directly from the headlines yeah like Emmett Till and George Stinney and um, Mm -hmm. and James Bird yeah but it's incredible I I thought this whole movie was incredible it was one of those like I said I, I watched it and then I watched all of the special features which there are several like good special features there's some stuff about the art there's some stuff about Nia DaCosta like they have a a sit down with a whole bunch of folks who are psychiatrists and in social work and Tanana Reeve do talking about yeah. the history of, of black horror and, and how this movie integrates the actual horror into the story. And yeah, is if you guys buy it and you have a chance to watch the special features, they're definitely worth checking out. Oh yeah, I did watch that one. Um and you have this really great line about what this candyman does is reclaim trauma to tell it in a way that is soothing and healing and empowering. And I really like that. To me, Get Out is like a film about Black trauma that's very traumatic to watch. Whereas this is a film about Black trauma that's like more cathartic to watch because Mm -hmm. you're seeing like these Black men who were killed be able to get revenge for what happened to them. So it is in like a way healing to be able to watch this film. Yeah. Yeah. So... I feel like uh, we have talked about a lot of the, the concepts of things that uh, you know we usually talk about with our, our progressive stuff in this movie. Specifically, we talked a lot about race. Is there anything anybody wanted to say about the you know racial and social justice issues that come up in this movie that you, you feel like you haven't covered already? I mean, there were a couple of things that I thought were great. So rarely do you get to see a representation of people of color that spans the experience. So yeah, you have the situation the projects with computer degree but then you have the situation with you have an accomplished art dealer and all these other things i'm like all right we got to see we we got to see layers of color layers of experiences all impacted by the same history and i think that was valid also i felt like tiana you know tiana paris's hair was flawless and i think that was great because that's not always something that you see on black women in film just may not be significant to others but i think it's significant to me yeah her hair her makeup her whole look all the way through was on point i think it was 
flawless. Those are the little things. I often talk about this when I'm on the Talking Comics podcast. I say this a lot about books that I'm reading. If you listen to me rant on all last year about Far Sector, there's a character called named Joe Mullen who's in the book Far Sector. And one of the things I kept harping on every time I brought that book to the show was the way Jamal Campbell, the artist, drew her. He drew her with hair similar to in, in one scene to the way that Brianna's hair is set up. He drew her with a wider nose. He drew her with a very specific complexion. He drew her, even though she was wearing the form-fitted Green Lantern costume, with wider hips. And you knew who you knew you were looking at a Black character. And my point was, so often when you see Black characters and represented in comics, it's really just a white character with darker ink. And that's how it's it's demonstrated on, on the page. So when another team draw that character, that's exactly what she was. It was a white character. She was thinner. She was more this. Her hair was a little bit different. And so I always ping on those types of things. Just the simplest things. And when you see a Black woman get her hair wet in a film and she comes up and it's still straight, we're like, no, that's not what happens. And stop lying to people because we all know that's not what happens, but you're creating this idealized world of, no, she's just, it's, she's glowing and she's glistening. No, she would have a full-blown fro when she came out of that way. Just the reality of, <laughs> of those types of things. When I see them, they hit for me. And so seeing that here, I think that hit for me as well. It just on a variety of levels, it makes the movie a little bit more real and I connect a little bit better to it, but that's my rant. Oh, that's that's yeah, definitely no, I, I definitely agree. That is something I frequently pick on in, in other comics. The first story I ever did for Marvel, which was the, the Misty Knight and Danny Rand story. The, the team who drew that is Japanese and they got Misty in three different hairstyles, all of them correct. So white guys who live in the U.S., you can make the effort. You can figure it out. <laughs> make it happen. Exactly. Look around your Your're world. Fucking head. <laughs> Those little things matter to people. It's and it seems like such a small thing to to do that has such big that pays off in such dividends that it will connect you to a product, connect you to a source of media. Yeah. yeah. As a woman, I could definitely relate in that way to finding someone a, a comic book character that is realistic looking and sounding and does things. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, I think in, in particular, when you look at this movie, it's clear that you had people who knew how to deal with black hair, people who knew how to do makeup for a black woman, people who knew how to light black people, which is often not the case, especially in horror movies, which are often like cheaply made and have one style of lighting that they go with for everything. And this, uh, I, I can't rave enough about Nia DaCosta's directing in this movie. The framing of shots and the the lighting and the way things are put together is just so good. There are so many scenes in this where I was just like, after the scene, I was just like, wow, wow. That was real good. And not just the deep shots, but especially the deep shots. And the fact that I feel like her inclination is artistic rather than flat out horror she would rather do something that is incredibly creepy and very scary but doesn't feel the need to dwell directly on the stab wound to to mm -hmm. get the the point across that so many of the actual murders in this are are done in uh ways that are, are interesting and different and not just a man with a large blade chasing somebody around i did miss I mean the mouthful of bees Honestly, there's even something about the way the hook's used where we get this 
repeating like part of the violence is it goes in and then we get this sudden slashing outwards like of the blood where it's just like i don't know there's just something even more visceral about it than the usual like michael myers butcher knife jason machete yeah and also the fact that he's like holding people up with it you Mm. see these people being like thrown around and if you have a giant hook there's a lot of things in the human body that can be hooked. Not that I know from experience. But. And yeah, some of it's just fun. like good sound design. Like it is meaty and visceral when he is just slashing people apart. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we've talked a lot about class as well. The class is very tied in with the issues of race in this movie and specifically in gentrification. And we do also see people of color across several different classes in this movie. And that is uh, a level of representation that is often missing even when you know, race is well done in a movie, which I I think is great. And in particular, I love that we get to, we've talked about Tiana Paris and the fact that we get to see so much of her in this movie as the, she's not maybe the protagonist of this movie, but I feel like if there is a hero's journey in this, that it's probably hers. She is the one who is dealing with this past trauma and this new trauma and is the witness that, goes will go forth to tell everyone what has happened at the end of this i, I love when grady called her out on taking advantage of gentrification <laughs> i was like but, i was like but is it though because if she's no it's not it was almost like i don't know what how to look at it. it's like a mental rubik's cube i'm like is it gentrification if she's black in the neighborhoods <laughs> like i don't know I'm going to say that's something I'm wildly unqualified to speculate (laughs) upon. (laughs) And uh, I guess on the question of of Brianna, do we feel like this movie was feminist? It's not non-feminist. Yeah, I don't feel like this movie was like in any way anti-feminist or that Brianna wasn't a good, strong, well-rounded woman character. But I don't feel like the themes of this movie were specific feminist issues. Yeah. 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 I I think they really do lean more into the injustices done to black men in this story. And Brianna is really one of the only black women of of note in this movie. There are certainly one of the only women of note in the movie. Really? Yeah. So I don't know if I would say it was specifically feminist, but I feel like there was a, a generational theme played here. You have. Black men who experience trauma and and disrespect, who are cared for by Black women with the expectation of being proud. So I think that was what what we were supposed to be taking from this. We have this more than one occasion throughout the film. He is disrespected by someone. And then he comes home and he is cared for by this woman who, because of her own experiences, are attracted to this person who is experiencing trauma or is who's got some, as her brother said, some sort of psychotic break. I just thought it was maybe a hyper-focused view of this un- unhealthy relationship between Black men and Black women in some instances where there's this sort of respect to Black men, respect to Black women, respect each other question that's being asked. I feel like it wasn't resolved or anything like that, but I think the question was definitely asked. And part of me felt like it was a Nia DaCosta experiential thing yeah. that she was you know, putting on, ex- experimenting with on screen. I get that for sure. 
Yeah, and I think I, I think it's interesting. There are so few horror movies that we see that are shot with a black female gaze that have a you know black woman behind the camera framing everything. And I, I think it's I think one of my favorite things about this movie is that there is a scene after the initial dinner party where they go Tiana Paris and or Brianna and and Anthony go back to their room and they're having a conversation and they're having maybe a, a prelude to sexy times and she is wearing like a head wrap and like real pajamas in a way that uh, I think rarely happens in horror movies period but especially in a way that you know feels authentic to a black woman mm -hmm. having been married mm -hmm. to a black woman myself for 12 years I think so rarely is that sort of interest and attention paid to to details like that and it's really good and it's really nice to see yeah <laughs> I, yeah so I guess our ultimate take on it is this movie has good, authentic women character in Brianna, who is has lots of agency and dimension. But this movie is not inherently exploring feminist themes, but is still awesome. On need to consummate a good fucking movie. I don't know. Yeah. I'm just bad. Made a good fucking movie. I'm just rambling at that. Otherwise, in we terms of we wanted to say about the the LGBTQIA representation in this because it is certainly there. We don't have to dig for it. Yeah, I, I like mean, I, I, there he's happy and he has his own kind of thing going on. He's a completely realized person. He's not just exposition. He's not just a plot device. Like he he has his own life. <laughs> And it's so nice to see a queer black person. I feel like so many times in film when you see like representation from the LGBTQ community, they're almost always white. So it is nice to have the intersectionality there. And also, as Ben said earlier, it's nice that he doesn't fall into the barrier gay stroke. Right. Yeah, he so does afraid. survive the whole movie. And well, I was like, yes. He's not just a best friend. He's a sibling. So it's oh. the, I, I have a reason to be here that is not just commenting on whatever's going on in y'all's life like in your yeah. relationship more importantly <laughs> I, he is bringing back pleats and body shirts you cannot hate that <laughs> i love the scene where they go back to the apartment and he's just yelling out loud like we are coming for her things we will be leaving with them come out where i can see you and he throws his fabulous bag on the counter i was like i want that bag um, <laughs> that's a good protective sibling like yeah. yeah. Despite yeah. the fact that, despite the fact that looking at them, I don't think he could actually take Anthony. He really no. commits to the no. idea. They made it a point of draping Anthony in the most form-fitting and muscle-accentuating materials throughout the entire film. So I think when seeing Troy in his body shirt, I'm like, no, sir, no, you're not going to do anything near what you think you will <laughs> when push comes to shove. <laughs> But I appreciate you throwing yourself in front of your sister while she's giving her at least two or three seconds to get away. Yeah. I would say we all Start there and go up. If this is being worth seeing, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Watch this movie. Definitely. Just turn off your sump pump. We, we got any recommendations for people to check out? Morgan, you got anything to recommend? Yeah, I would recommend Horror Noir on Shutter. You can also read the original book by Robin Means Coleman, but the documentary is really great. It has a lot of Black voices like Hannah Narif do and Tony Todd. 
And one of the films they do review is in fact Candyman. So it's great to have that perspective on uh, different horror films. Uh, Emmanuel, <laughs> what, uh, what would you recommend people check out? Um, I'm going to recommend a podcast because that's all I listen to. And it's actually by the director, DaCosta. It's Ghost Tape. It explores a lot of the similar themes that Candyman does looking at like trauma and buried stories and how that affects the present. It's not perfect, but I think it's worth your time. It's worth checking out. It's an audio drama. Yeah, awesome. And let's see, Aaron, what have you got? I was inspired by Tiana Paris's hair. Chris Rock's good hair. (laughs) Say check that out because I just think it's fun. But yeah, that's it. Fantastic. So uh, Ben, what have you got? Oh man, I guess go watch Matrix Resurrections because it has more uh, Yaya Abdul-Martin II being awesome and he wears lots of dope as hell colorful ass suits and i have a whole theory on how his morpheus represents the non-binary experience so go watch it and then let me know if you agree with me or don't i'm not going to interact with you on twitter or maybe (laughs) i will i don't know (laughs) fantastic okay uh, Emily, what have you got? I'm going to talk about William Kentridge and Kara Walker. I recommend looking them up. William Kentridge has done a lot of short films with the silhouettes and puppetry and um, animation. And he's a white artist. He's from South Africa. He's His family, they were all attorneys that advocated for people who were marginalized by apartheid. So a lot of his work is rooted in social justice and has definitely influenced this movie a little bit. But more than that, I'm going to talk about, I'm going to definitely recommend you work. We check out the work of Carol Walker. She's a black artist from uh, Stockton, California, but uh, she has some incredibly awesome work that she does installation work and check it out. Carol Walker spelled K-A-R-A. Walker is in you walk. Yeah. Like Walker, Texas Ranger, very influential artists and a movie about artists. Awesome. What I'm going to recommend is something I've watched recently and it ties very closely to what Morgan recommended, which is uh, Shudder recently released a anthology of uh, horror noir short films that they produced, several of which have people who are in the horror noir documentary. There's a, a nice sprinkling of great black actors black directors black writers making stuff in there i think it's about three hours worth of of short films but uh it's definitely worth a watch people should check it out it's hopefully you know people will see really coming up and and doing big things in the near future um but that is what i recommend so just spend a whole day on shutter it sounds like (laughs) (laughs) sounds like a great time (laughs) yeah who doesn't love Shutter? Now, before we wrap up, let's let people know where they can find you online. Morgan, where can people find your you and your work online? You can find me at diversity horror at blogspot.com or diversity horror on Twitter. Nice. And Aaron, what about you? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at Aaron J. Amos and every Wednesday morning on your whatever podcast aggregator you have for the Talking Comics podcast. <laughs> and Emmanuel, where can people find you and your work online? I'm on Twitter at elipscom2. Fantastic. As for the rest of us, you can find Emily at Megamoth on Twitter and at Mega underscore Moth on Instagram and Megamoth.net. Ben is on Twitter at BenTheCon and on their website at BenConComics.com, where you can pick up their books, including the brand new Immortals Phoenix Rising graphic novel from Great Beginnings. And you can pre-order the upcoming Blows Against the Empire graphic novel. 
And finally, for me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jrome58. It's J-R-O-M-E-5-8. And my website is jeremywhitley.com, where you can check out everything I write when things do eventually come out. And of course, the podcast is on Patreon at Progressively Horrified. Our website is progressivelyhorrified.transistor.fm. And on Twitter at ProgHorrorPod, where you can come tell us what you think about this film and all the other films we talk about, as well as how we talk about them. We would love to hear from you. Speaking of loving to hear from you, we would love it if you could rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening. That'll help us find new listeners and get us up the charts where you know more people can find us. I do want to thank everybody again for joining us. Thank you, Morgan, Emmanuel, Aaron. It was so great to talk to you guys about this. It's a great time. I love this movie. Thank, thank you so you. much for having us. Thank yeah. you. It was a great time. Yeah. And uh, thanks as always to my co-hosts, Ben and Emily, for, for joining me. This was a great time. This has been a real fun February full of good movies absolutely yeah, thank you for bringing <laughs> giving me the excuse to watch this movie finally yes yeah and next week we're going to be back to our normal schedule so we won't have short films every monday we'll just have our our regular friday spots but definitely come tune in next week because we'll be talking about the the french film Tatan, which is a new one last year and we will be talking about it with our friend T. Franklin. So come back and check that out. And until next time, stay horrified. Mm-hmm.